we're going to have our main Bible reading, which is Romans 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, verse 13. So that's Romans 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, 13. Would be worth following that in your Bible. <coughs> and it says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. <clears throat> who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuading the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ 
became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in whom will the Gentiles hope? In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Okay, we'll do keep that open. We're going to be looking at that together. Um, oh, I've remembered what the, uh, um, another one of the um, epistle things we're looking at, and that is the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So we're going to have an extensive look, particularly at how Paul in Romans uses the Old Testament, and that's going to really help us to put the Bible together. So it's going to be really, um, but we'll have that time to really spend um, you know, two hours together really... Um, going as far as we can with that. But that's not... Uh, well, we're going to touch on that in the, in the, in the message, but um, that's for later. Uh, as is usually the case, there is an outline of where we're going in your service sheet to make use of that. And there will be a time for questions and comments, if you have any, at the end. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to continue to explore uh, what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you in view of the mercy you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray, please, that we would be attentive to your word and that the same spirit who inspired it to be written uh, through the hand of Paul will help us understand it and its implications for us as a church family. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Making judgments, <coughs> <Yeah. coughs> Making judgments is one of the most unpopular but necessary parts of life. In the main, people don't like making judgments, especially negative uh, ones. And in our tolerant society, we're, uh, we're supposed to be inclusive of all people and uh, all opinions, whatever they might be. I mean, do not judge or you too will be judged. And in many ways, that's the top trump for those who know any of the sayings of Jesus. Um, if you want to see it for yourself, turn back. It's Matthew 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it, uh, measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Now, the command that people like is, do not judge. But the rest of the passage, well, that's just often overlooked. But the reason for the commandment is, is given in verse 2. So, Matthew 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So do not judge isn't a, an absolute prohibition from all judgments, but rather a declaration that the way we judge others is the way we ourselves will be judged. And the basis that we criticise and condemn people is the same basis on which we will be criticised and condemned. And then, of course, that humorous illustration of uh, specks and logs is making the point against hypocrisy. It's not making a point against judgments. And indeed, in the next section, there are all kinds of judgments about recognizing false prophets and so on. Now, when we get to Romans 14, there is a strong note of acceptance and welcome. So if you have a look, Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Then further on in chapter 15, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But before we go any further, we do need to consider the context for which this welcome and acceptance is appropriate and right. And there's two things to observe. The first is that Paul here is talking about relationships between Christians. Okay? So if you look down, 14 verse 3, he's talking about people who've been accepted by God. Uh, 14 verse 10, he's talking about relationships between Christian brothers. And then verse 15 of chapter 14, it's people for whom Christ has died. Okay? So Paul's talking about here about relationships within the church family. Not between everybody and any, anybody, but between fellow Christians. The second thing to observe about the situation is that Paul speaks of a division within the church family. Between those who he refers to in chapter 14, verse 1, as weak in the faith. And by contrast, 15, verse 1, those who are strong. And it seems that there's a number of issues that divide these two groups. So, uh, 14 verse 2, the strong eat all kinds of food, while the weak eat only vegetables. Hmm. 14 verse 5, the strong make no distinction among days, while the weak value some days more than others. And then 14 verse 21, the strong drink wine, while the weak abstain. Now, those differences might seem a bit uh, strange and remote to us. You know, we might be thinking, well, why, why would they have these differences? But it seems likely that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who refrained from certain kinds of food and observed certain kinds of days out of continuing loyalty to the Mosaic law. And that would kind of fit with you know, a Jew-Gentile theme uh, Jew-Gentile relationships has been a theme throughout the whole book of Romans. 
And also Paul's use of the term common unclean to describe the weak Christian's attitude towards food. And you know, clean and clean is a distinctly Jewish uh, categorization. And so when Paul says that their faith is weak, he's not saying that these people are weak, as in physically weak. And they're not weak in that they're particularly susceptible to being influenced by others and, say, getting drunk. I mean, the weak are actually portrayed as having strong convictions that what they're doing is for the Lord. And he's not saying that these people have a weak or inadequate trust in Christ as their Saviour and Lord. If that were the case, then Paul wouldn't make a plea for understanding and acceptance. Rather, what he's getting at is their lack of insight into some of the implications of their faith in Christ. That these Christians who are not able to accept for themselves the truth that their faith in Christ implies freedom from certain Old Testament and Jewish requirements. They are, if you can put it like this, Christians with scruples. Now, they are over-scrupulous in areas that they needn't be. And it's in view of this division between the weak and the strong that Paul explains what God's will is for his people. And there are three things uh, to observe. The first is, accept, don't condemn. So let's read again verses, chapter 14, verses 1, 2, 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, although much of the chapter is addressed to the strong, here Paul highlights that there are faults on both sides. Okay, so the problem with the strong is that they look down on the weak. They despise those whose faith is weak. You know, they lack understanding, they're foolish. Whereas the weak... Well, they condemn the strong. Now, abstainers can make others feel guilty. And actually, each side has a view of the other side that's less than Christian. It's a condemning one. And it's in this context that there's this note of welcome, or there is to be this note of welcome and acceptance. Now, to accept is not tolerate or give official recognition, but to accept one another as fellow members of a family with all the love and concern that should typify brothers and sisters. And the reason for accepting one another in this way, verse 3, is because God has accepted them. And actually, Paul exposes the arrogance of their position with a kind of a who-are-you argument of verse 4. You know, if God has accepted them, well, who are you to reject them? Now, Christians have no right to reject from their fellowship those whom God 
has accepted. And actually, we're never to think that we become Christians by being accepted by the church. You know, it's not... We don't become Christians through our relationship with the pastor or through relationship with people in the church or through attendance or the money we give or the serving we do. You know, we don't find our place in the church by our connections with other people, but by our faith in Christ. We become a member of the church through putting our trust in Jesus Christ. His death opens the way for all who trust in him to be welcomed by God. That's the reason we're able to stand. In other words, we're not accepted by God because we're accepted by the group. And neither are we rejected by God because we're rejected by the group. God accepts us because of Christ. And because, this is the crucial thing, because God accepts us, we accept one another. That's the logic. And actually, the priority of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus is further emphasised in the rest of the section. So verses 5 to 9, we're to do everything for him, whether we live or die, everything, we do it for the Lord Jesus. And in verses 10 to 12, on the final day before the judgment seat of God, it is to him that we have to give an account. So verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What Paul is reminding us of is that our relationship with the Lord Jesus shapes our relationship with one another and not the other way around. The second thing to observe um, is that uh, Paul uh, calls us to build up but don't destroy. So let's pick it up from verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. One of the surprising things in this whole chapter is how Paul doesn't sort out the confusion between the weak and the strong. I mean, it's interesting because, in, after all, in verse 14... He says that he is fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So you might expect him to address Christians with scruples and say, don't you understand? All food is now clean. Have a bacon sandwich. They are delicious. Have a glass of wine. Enjoy it. You're free to enjoy these things. Come on, tuck in. You're missing out. But that isn't Paul's approach. And it's, it's interesting because Paul assumes that people differ in their ability to internalise truth. It's hard to internally grasp such truth, particularly when it runs so counter to a long and strong-held tradition basic to their own identity as God's people. And for that reason, Paul says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean 
in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. The motives of our actions matter to God. So if a Christian thinks eating pork is sinful, then to them it would be sinful to eat pork because for them it would be an act of rebellion against God. And so for this reason, Paul warns the strong against this overbearing approach. So he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So the strong should not force the weak to eat meat or to drink wine or to ignore the Sabbath when the weak are not yet convinced that their faith in Christ allows them to do so. For to do so would be to force them to sin and do them spiritual harm. So just because I'm free to do it doesn't mean I should exercise that freedom. Well, does that mean that the strong and weak just tolerate one another? You know, these things don't really matter. Well, it's not the impression that Paul has given so far. Quite the contrary. Um, everything matters, says Paul. Everything should be done for the Lord. So elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And actually, Paul's decision to use the the negative phrase, weak in faith, gives the impression that Paul would hope that a growth in Christ would help those who were weak to become strong. And this sen sentiment is made plain in chapter 14, verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul wants the church to grow in maturity. But the thing that he's getting at, the thing he wants us to understand, is the environment in which this is to happen or not happen. It's not by the strong doing these things, verse 21, and it may be better if they abstain. And it's not, verse 22, by the strong making them subject of every conversation, which would be a wrong focus. I mean, again, it's interesting that Paul doesn't go into detail about what the strong should do to strengthen the weak. But elsewhere, he speaks of patient teaching, patiently teaching the word of God in its fullness. That's the way we grow to maturity. And these things will work themselves out over a period of time. Well, the third and final observation is to persevere and don't give up. Paul is well aware that to accept one another in this way is going to be hard work. In chapter 15, verse 1, Paul speaks of bearing with one another and not pleasing ourselves. And I suspect at times it will feel like um, we're not getting anywhere and should just give up. Now, wouldn't it just be easier to go our separate ways? Now, you do your thing, I'll do mine, that sort of thing. Now, one of the distinctive things about this final section in a uh, uh, chapter 15, 1 to 13, is it contains a number of Old Testament quotations. Four, in fact. And the reason that Paul includes these is he wants to frame all that's going on in the church in Rome 
in its wider context in redemptive history. And he does this as an encouragement to keep going in accepting one another and growing in maturity. So let's pick it up from uh, chapter 15, verse 5. It says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The barrier between the strong and the weak is at root a barrier between the Jew and Gentile. And it's a barrier that Christ's ministry is dismantled. Paul makes this clear in verse 8 by showing that Christ provides both for the fulfilment of God's promises to the Jews and, verse 9, for the inclusion of Gentiles in glorifying God. And actually, all four Old Testament quotations speak of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. But look again at verse 10, chapter 15, verse 10. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In other words, Paul is showing them that what he is calling them to do is nothing less than to get in line with what God has done and is continuing to work out so they will be encouraged and endure. This is where humanity is going and what they're experiencing in part they will enjoy in its fullness in the new creation, both Jew and Gentile united in Christ and accepted. And it comes as a great encouragement to doing God's will in this area and to keep doing it because it's God's will and therefore will bear fruit. Well, look, um, as we finish, uh, let's ex explore three implications for us today as a church. Because these truths shape the environment of our church family. And in particular, the weak would not stumble but grow to maturity. So the first um, implication relates to, well, the vision of Trinity Church. And that is that we're a church that is to serve um, the people of Bradford. And over the past uh, years, as we've been going, we have had people visit us from all over Bradford. And this passage alerts us to the fact that there will be some who will visit us who may well have scruples, where they, meet, where they need not have scruples. And as a church family, we want to be alert to that, and sensitive to that. And as Christians, we want the overall note to them to be a note of welcome, of acceptance in Christ. Second implication is, well, imagine a church where a number in it think that it's wrong to drink alcohol. And they say, 
We're the weaker brothers and sisters, and therefore nobody in the church should drink alcohol, as that's what it says in Romans 14. Well, how are we to think about that? <coughs> well, I think it provides an opportunity to explore the point that Paul envisages a growth in maturity of the church and this movement from weaker to stronger. So the picture that Paul paints is not that the church descends to its lowest common denominator and then just gets stuck there for the rest of her life. You know, a church is never to be hijacked by the weak and run and dictated by them. Rather, we want to be patient with people, but at the same time, set a trajectory to grow out of our scruples into maturity. And the third um, implication is, well, Bradford is a city of over half a million people. Around a quarter are professing to be Muslim. And it's going to be no surprise that in the years to come, that we will witness God saving some of them and bringing them to uh, here at Trinity. Now, a traditional Muslim will only have ever eaten halal meat and never had an alcoholic drink. Those things are strictly forbidden. And if someone becomes a Christian out of that context, it's not going to be a surprise to us that they can't bring themselves to eat pork or non-halal meat or drink alcohol. You know, to have lived that all your life, it's a big thing. And therefore, we need to keep coming back to Romans chapter 14 to know God's will for us in that situation. Well, let me pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to explore further what it means to offer ourselves as living uh, sacrifices to you in view of your mercy shown us in Christ. Father, we uh, pray on that you'd help us to think carefully about the kinds of judgments uh, that we make as your people. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have accepted the people for yourself. And pray, therefore, that we would... Um, uh, accept where you accept that we would share your verdict on one another and not condemn. Father, we pray too that we would be um, eager to um, build one another up and that in the freedom that we have as your people uh, that we would not use that to uh, cause others to stumble but rather that we might so live that we would grow in maturity and Father, I pray too that uh, we'd appreciate that in the hard uh, work that you call us to in this area, that we wouldn't just do the easier thing of just going our separate ways. But help us to know that you have one people uh, made up of Jew and Gentile and all the nations of the world. And therefore, we would know that we are in line with you as we seek to um, uh, understand the unity that we have as your people. And therefore, we would um, persevere with one another and be built up um, as your church. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's question time. Uh, I don't have my colleague here, so...
can always phone them up if I get stuck. No, no, but um, yep. Does anybody want to ask anything about what's been said or explore any further implications? could be one of these sermons where you just think, do you know what, that's just all crystal clear. I'm happy with that. Everyone's happy? Uh, go on, Susie. Okay. Let me, um, the question is, uh, what does verse, chapter 4, verse 16 means? Well, let me just read again from verse 13, just to kind of get the, the flow. And we'll have a look. So it says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuading the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it is thinks it unclean. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So I think um, that verse 16 is, is the categories of verse 16 in terms of the good and the evil relate back to what's been said in verse 15. So, um, so I think the evil is the fact that the brother is grieved by what you eat. Um, whereas actually the person who is doing the eating is actually is a good thing. It's fine. You're free to eat. So I think this goes back to the the um, the uh, how Paul. I think it's interesting because Paul's more less concerned with sorting out the scruples of the weak, although as we've discussed. He wants to set a trajectory for that. But what he, he, he is aware of is an approach of the strong, which basically are overbearing on the weak. So they think they're doing a good thing. They think they're forcing the issue. Come on, there's, you can eat and drink what you want. All foods are clean. Jesus said that, you know, Mark 7, um, Acts uh, 10 11. Um, but actually, what you think is good is actually been spoken of as evil because you're actually causing brothers to... Well, it's quite strong, isn't it? By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died because you're actually causing them to go against their conscience and therefore sin. Um, so I think important in verse 16 is that what you regard as good so I think there's a thing of motive here that you maybe think you're doing a good thing, but actually it's causing a brother to stumble because they've not internalised this truth yet. They still think it's 
They spend their whole... I mean, it's hard to imagine, because we, we don't... We, um, although I mentioned the case of a, a, a Muslim becoming a Christian, if you're a Jew and you spend your whole life avoiding that which is unclean, celebrating these holy days, never drinking alcohol, it's just... It's just, you know, your body just riles at it. It's just a kind of it's so internalised, and therefore it's just going to take time. And in many ways, there's a call for patience here rather than, yeah, I don't know, I kind of, I'm kind of going around. Does that? Yes, and, and in particular, I, I think he's envisioning a case of that you could eat in such a way that actually you destroy this brother, that you cause him to stumble, and so therefore you think by forcing the issue you're doing good. I think that's what, I think that's what he's getting at. Anybody else? All happy. <laughs>